Right, good morning and welcome to the show. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the story that shocked the country last week, and that's the discovery of the buried bodies of more than 200 children at the site of a former Indigenous regi- residential school in Kamloops. The discovery announced by the Tecumloops Disequepem First Nation on Thursday, and the First Nation said the discovery made by a specialist they hired to use ground-penetrating radar to search the school site. Let's discuss now with my guest, Murray Rankin, B.C.'s Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, this is a shocking story, to say the, the least. It's shocked the country. It's being reported around the world. First of all, what's, what's your reaction when you heard this? Well, obviously, my heart goes out to the uh, individuals, not just from the Tecumloops to Shwepmik people, but from all of a lot of Western Canada. These children came from as far away as Alberta, I'm told, as well as up as far as Fort Nelson. So it's a lot of uh, a lot of people whose children disappeared, and they uh, they've been saying for years that they don't know where their children were. And uh, this story appears to s- confirm their worst fears. The discovery was announced by the First Nation last week. Have you spoken to the chief there, Roseanne Casimir? I have. I have absolutely spoken with her, and I've also reached out to the two local uh, MLAs from Kamloops and intend to speak with the mayor today. I've also spoken with Minister Mark Miller, the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services, who's as shocked as anyone about this story. And, uh, you know, as you probably know, Mike, that federal uh, government uh, buildings will have their flags uh, flown at half-mast, as will here in British Columbia, uh, to to, uh, mark this, uh, this tragedy. What are the next steps here? The, the First Nation, when the, this was announced last week, said these were preliminary findings and that a fuller report would be issued by this specialist that they hired. What is your understanding of how that's going to roll out? Uh, exactly. It, they, they've been clear that these were preliminary uh, findings and they wanted to get the news out just as soon as they could. But there may be other, uh, there will be more work to be done, no doubt, there. And, of course, several nations across the province have said, well, what about the schools where, where, where our children, or rather our, our, our parents or grandparents uh, uh, attended? For example, Lower Post is the site of uh, horrific uh, uh, tales. Uh, uh, um, the Premier uh, was moved to tears when he went to Lower Post and I think persuaded the federal minister uh, ministers to come on board and uh, that's, that residential school is being torn down in, in the next few months. I, I mean, so there, it's not, it's been said for years that this isn't isolated, this isn't simply the, the Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School as it was known, but it's perhaps elsewhere in the province as well. So, you know, more than 4,100 children died while attending residential schools. Um, that's what we know, but maybe there were others as well who just never came back. So it reminds us of the legacy of residential schools, and uh, it's a day for mourning for sure. Okay, how does the uh, the investigation proceed from here? I mean, is this being controlled by the First Nation, or I know the coroner has been called in is there a role from the pro- for the province and the federal government here to be involved in this process now? That, that's a great question. Uh, it's the work that the nation took on, on on the basis of a pathway to healing grant that they received from the province. And uh, they are talking to, to other First Nations around the province, as I said, who may wish to follow a similar uh, path using this uh, penetra- ground-penetrating radar to, to determine whether there are such uh, atrocities uh, 
located elsewhere in our province. And so it's for them. I think the key is I want there's nobody who wishes to do this in uh, without the full uh, involvement and leadership of the indigenous uh, nations affected, because uh, it's right. it's obviously traumatic for so many people, and not everyone will take the same path, Mike. Okay, the, the First Nation has said that they are working with the BC Coroner's Service. Are you confident that the service has the the resources and, and the mandate and authority they need here? Of course, we've never had such a story arise, so I can't answer that. But if they don't, I'm sure those resources will be made available. Okay, and in terms of what is being done to preserve and protect the this site and other sites, we're already hearing from Indigenous leaders across the country that, as you as you reference, that this may not be the only site. This may not be the only the only mass burial sites. What is being done to preserve and protect those sites as this investigation continues? I honestly can't answer that. I think it would be different across each part of our province. Uh, so I'd have to, uh, I'd have to leave it to the individual nations to request assistance in safeguarding the sites, uh, if as and when required. Uh, but to my knowledge, there's no steps that have been taken. After all, Mike, this uh, story just came out on Thursday, and we've yeah. been reeling ever since. And so it's a little early to uh, answer those kind of questions. Right. Perry Bellegarde, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, is is calling for an investigation today. He said this could be a, a massive reaction to this discovery, the preservation of DNA evidence, trying to find, identify who these children are, notifying their families, arranging for grief counseling, ceremonies protocol, perhaps the reinternment of bodies. What can you say about that? I mean, it just sounds like this is going to be a, a massive undertaking. There are so many unanswered questions here. Precisely. So many un unanswered questions indeed. And that's exactly what we have to work with each of the nations affected to, 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 to understand what their wishes are. That's the first thing. And also to make sure that, that as you point out, grief counseling, there's a hotline uh, available for people who have been affected by this, a crisis line in, in British Columbia. There's also the National Indian Residential School crisis line. This is going to be uh, traumatic. This will bring back horrible memories for many, many people, and we want to make sure that the, the, peop, the living are, are, are protected and that they have the supports that they need. That's, that's certainly one of my priorities here. Speaking to BC Minister of Indigenous Relations, Murray Rankin, you mentioned that you've been in touch with your federal counterparts. Is the federal government the lead here? Well, you know, to the extent that the residential schools program was a federal uh, program, but nobody wants to talk, I think, about constitutional divisions of power at a time like this. We're all going to step up. We're all going to try to work cooperatively. That was made, I made clear that that's our goal. I've spoken with uh, Mayor Kennedy Stewart. I've spoken as well with Minister Miller. And we will, the, the message is, is, is absolutely the same. How can we collaborate? I've spoken to Peter Miller, or at least I've emailed Peter Millerbar as well, and I'll be speaking to the Mayor of Kamloops. But the first and foremost is uh, Chief uh, Roseanne Casimir uh, in, in Kamloops itself. And what is, it, what is it that they wish us to do there? And then, of course, as you point out, there'll be other ramifications uh, where residential schools were located elsewhere in our province. And we'll take it one at a time. Yeah, there's been calls for many years for further investigations into this going back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which made a series of recommendations about investigations of these of these suspected sites. And there's been concerns around 
barriers to doing full investigations, for example, calling on churches that ran a lot of these residential schools to release their records and to cooperate. Would you call on churches in the country and in British Columbia to cooperate with any investigations in terms of the release of records here? Well, you know, I understand that uh, Mar- uh, Mary-, Mary Ellen Turpel Lafond, uh, uh, who has a, who heads up a project at UBC uh, dealing with residential schools, has done exactly that, and I I would echo that. I, I mean, if there are records that can help us understand just who these children are and what happened, uh, and if those records are held, I don't care where. Uh, certainly in the provincial archives, the Royal BC Museum has made clear they'll fully cooperate. They put that statement out on Friday. And I would hope and expect that the federal government would do the same to the extent that they have records, and I would hope and expect that the churches would also do the same. We all need to get to the bottom of this. This was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's recommendations, and uh, I, I expect that cooperation. Minister, thank you very much for your time today on a difficult day. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. There's going to be a lot of controversy. A lot of hearts are going to be breaking over this. In our ceremonies, we're going to most likely be bringing them home, which means potentially unearthing them and going through and identifying them and then seeing which community they belong to. So that's going to be so hard and so horrendous. All right. Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith. You heard the voice there of Chief Judy Wilson there from the Nisqanlith First Nation. And talking about the story that has shocked Canada in the last few days has flashed around the world, too. The discovery of the buried bodies of more than 200 children at that site of the former Indigenous Residential School in Kamloops. You heard my conversation there earlier with Murray, Wank- Murray Rankin, uh, BC's Minister of Indigenous Relations. And let's discuss uh, this story more now with my guest, Dr. Tricia Logan, Head of Research and Engagement at the Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at UBC, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Dr. Logan, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much. Okay, I really appreciate your time. What did you, uh, could I get your reaction first to this horrifying news that we've heard there, we've all been uh, dealing with here in the last few days. What what went through your mind when you heard this? Uh, Well, I've been working in this, and with residential school survivors for around 20 years now, and was very closely watching the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and had worked with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. So I had heard these stories from survivors from across Canada and in British Columbia here as well, uh, because survivors, of course, have always um, known about the the fights and known about the student deaths. But I think what was really, um, you know, very traumatic news to hear is the number of children that had been buried there and, and the lack of knowledge we have of, how many children were there, or the re- the lack of records we have affiliated with that space? Yeah, the First Nation here is saying these are undocumented uh, deaths. It appears so uh, starts a, a massive new investigation into into what happened. Can you you were an expert here in the the history of this uh, school system? Can you just comment a little bit about for for people who haven't followed this story closely? Um, what were these residential schools meant to achieve, and, and why are we hearing about so many children have, have died at these schools? How did that happen? Yeah, the schools became very well known for very high rates of disease and death and negligence and physical and sexual abuse. Uh, the schools were operated in Canada between the late 1800s and the last one closed in 1996. 
So there were about 150 schools across Canada and, um, you know, they really were created to uh, forcibly assimilate, Christianize and uh, quote-unquote civilize First Nations and Métis and Inuit children across Canada. And the way that the schools operated just allowed for very high rates of physical and sexual abuse and rampant disease and malnourishment, lack of food, um, just neglect. And so, the, you know, unlike any other schools in Canada, they really had alarmingly high rates of student um, illness and student death. Like, all of them had very large infirmaries, and a lot of kids were very ill and very sick for the, a long time that they were there. Speaking of Dr. Tricia Logan, UBC, as you mentioned here, this was a, a large system, over 150 of these schools. Have other bodies and are, are these type of burial sites, have, have other bodies and burial sites been found at other schools in the past? Yes, and a lot of work is, is ongoing. Um, research, like the research that was taken on by the Tukumloops to Shikwetmuk community, a lot of Indigenous communities that live nearby former sites of residential schools have taken that research on themselves to hire uh, ground-penetrating radar researchers yeah. or have conducted um, rec- archival research to look into the sites. Of the 150 residential schools in Canada, a vast majority of them did have cemeteries or burial sites affiliated with them. And so a lot of that work has been taken on by communities nearby or communities that would have had their children taken to those schools. I right, just got a couple of minutes left here. Of course, this school located in Kamloops, but is it likely that these children came from far and wide to this school? I mean, we heard some reports this morning that some of these some of these children may have come from other parts of British Columbia, maybe even from other provinces. That's true. Yes, Kamloops is a very large school. I believe one of the largest, if not the largest, in Canada. So. Right. Um, in our records, we can see about 30 to 35 different communities having had their children taken to Kamloops. Wow. And some of them were considerably taken from pretty far away. Often some schools in British Columbia uh, in the interior had students from the island, attend- Vancouver Island, attending schools pretty far away. And some from Alberta attending in British Columbia and vice versa. So often, yes, students were taken very far away to attend these schools. Okay, just a minute left here, Dr. Logan. What, how important is it to preserve and protect these sites now? Now that we've had reports of this discovery, uh, we've already heard from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission r- recommendations and, and other Indigenous leaders in the country that it's important to make sure these sites are preserved and protected. How important is that right now? It's very important, and you can see there's a lot of communities responding to hold ceremony and to honor the lives of the children at the, at the Kamloops site and as well as other sites across Canada. And a lot of communities have been doing this work for several decades and have researched the records and have created memorials or commemorative structures or have protected the sites. Um, but all that work is still ongoing and there's a lot of sites that still uh, need more protection and need more information about them. Okay, boy, this is uh, sparking now a, a massive investigation, and we're going to continue to follow it closely here on the show. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the continuing protests and arrests now on southern Vancouver Island over old-growth logging. Protesters have blocked logging roads in the Ferry Creek area. A judge has issued an injunction calling for the barricades to come down. That has not happened. The local Pachidat First Nation supports the logging there. They've asked the protesters to leave their territory. That has not happened. In fact, the protesters calling for more people to head to the area. More than 130 arrests so far. More arrests expected in this dispute. Now, we've covered this closely on the show. Last week on the show, I spoke to Sapora Berman, very high-profile environmental activist. She was arrested at the blockades just a few days ago, and here's what she had to say. The expert panel in recommendation number six explicitly says these areas need to be immediately deferred to maintain options in order to then have the conversations and proper consultation across the province with First Nations, with, with forestry communities, and, and design what we need to do. It's Sapora Berman there on the show last week calling for the logging to stop. Let's get the other side of it now. My guest is Tamara Maggot. Tamara is a supporter of the BC Forest Sector. She represents forestry families. She's the co-founder of Loonies for Loggers, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Tamara. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, you've seen a lot of these protests going on here for for many weeks now on the island, and uh, I thought it was interesting that you were one of the key organizers here to do a, a do a protest of your own. And we saw a rally on the weekend of forest family, forest dependent families trying to get their message out. What did you? Uh, what do, what's the message you want to get out to the public here? Well, I think there's a lot of misinformation that's been going on around with the facts around. Um, around Ferry Creek and what's happening there. And, you know, I think we all kind of want to hang on to something. And, and so when you have all of this mis- misinformation in front of you on social media, it gets very challenging to decipher and find the truth. So, you know, we went down to support the South Island and also just to share some information, share some fact, fact sheets with the general public and uh, hopefully get some facts out there as opposed to just the emotions. What are, what are the main facts you want to get out to people? Well, some of the things that are going out there is, um, you know, when we look at what's the Ferry Creek and we look at the size of the area that's in question, Ferry Creek itself is about 1,200 hectares. Surrounding yeah. Ferry Creek is just shy of 68,000 protected hectares. Yeah. So quite a large area around that that is already protected. So Ferry Creek itself, when we look at the watershed, it's 1,200 hectares. Teal Jones has an agreement in place with the Pachitit, um to log 200 hectares. They are only looking at logging 20 hectares this year. So a very, very small amount. Before that happens, there's consultations that, it, that need to happen as far as cultural trees, as far as biodiversity. There's so many different processes and consultation with the First Nations. So when you have outsiders that come in and try and take over what the First Nations have already agreed to, what the First Nations want, and they take over and they try and change the narrative around that, I think it's very disrespectful to the First Nations community. Okay, speaking of the Teal Jones Company, they're they're the logging company that's got the the permit here to cut. And as you mentioned, they're doing that in agreement with the Pachidot First Nation. They've got Absolutely. an agreement there to share revenue with, and it's a critical revenue stream, I know, for that community. Let me play this clip here for you, Tamara, and see what you think. This is Jack Gardner, who's uh, with the Teal Jones Logging Company, and how they feel about the protests that are going on. Jack Gardner here. 
I just don't understand why they're still targeting us after the courts ruled that what they're doing is illegal. We are pretty frustrated, you know, it's time to get back to work. We do everything the right way. We engage with the local First Nations. We log responsibly and moderately and uh, definitely well within the government regulations. Okay, Jack Gardner there from the Teal Jones uh, Forestry Company. Uh, speaking to Tamara Megat, she's uh, helping, she support, represents forestry families. Loonies for Loggers is her group. What has this been like for, for people who work in the woods, for families who are dependent on this industry, you got hardworking people in the forest here, and we see these protests going on every day? What's, what's that been like for, for families here? It gets extremely frustrating, you know, and watching the narrative play out online and the things that have been said when they talk about spiking of the trees, when they go so far as to post uh, recipes on ceramic spikes, when they're going into active falling areas and flying drones around fallers' heads, it's an extremely dangerous job already. And when you have protesters coming in with based on, based on lies and false information, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize is that this group, Ferry Creek, Rainforest Flying Squad, was actually started by a 17-year-old in Washington State. That gets extremely frustrating when an outsider is coming, not just into Canada, but into BC, and, and creating these kinds of dramatics around forestry, something that is, is very extremely regulated. We've seen a lot change over the last, you know, 30 years. My husband's been in business for 45 years. Yeah. We've seen a lot change. Some of it needed to change. Yes, there's been some job loss due to, due to mechanization. But forestry practices as a whole are, are extremely environmental. And uh, when we, we look at some of the things that are going on on a global perspective, you know, you look at China, who is trying to make the switch from they're the largest contributor to plastic waste. And when they are trying to make the switch from plastic to fiber-based, and we have the opportunity as Canada, as one of the leading environmentally friendly forestry provinces in BC, and we have the opportunity to help them make that change, and we have these protesters blocking that and stopping that, we have the opportunity to be a leader to help places like China make that switch, become more environmentally friendly, combat the climate change in a huge way, mm. and we have them stopping it. Okay, you mentioned that your husband has worked for a long time in the industry. What's it? What? How precious are these jobs right now in the in the forest right now? Like, if if things were to be shut down and people were to lose their jobs, what kind of impact would that have? <laughs> I, well, forestry contributes thirteen thirteen billion dollars to the GDP. People don't understand just how many offset jobs there are. You know, yeah. from everything from from the manufacturing jobs to um, the equipment to the mills, it's, what is it, one in, I believe it's one in 25 jobs now, it used to be less than that, is related to the forestry sector. And then you take the offset of that of the restaurants, you know, we go out, we, we eat dinner. Forestry is, is, one of, is one of the higher income jobs, which, and it's also what's kept the province going during this pandemic. You know, forestry has been an essential service. Forestry dollars, forestry tax dollars have continued to contribute to the GDP despite COVID, despite so many things closing down. Yeah. Tamara, thanks a lot for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it. 
Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the standoff on southern Vancouver Island. We've had more than 130 arrests there at those anti-logging blockades. We expect more arrests going forward here in the days ahead. The dispute centers around old growth logging in the area. Activists calling for that logging to be stopped. Let's discuss now with my guest Susan, Susan Yurkovich. Susan is the president and CEO of the Council of Forest Industries in BC. I'm pleased to welcome her. Hi. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about the dispute that's going on there on the island? What are your thoughts on it? Well, look, we're having an important conversation. We've had it before in the province of British Columbia uh, with respect to um, balancing um, how we use our resources. And so, you know, obviously we understand uh, that people are feeling quite emotional about this. I, I think you saw you've seen folks on the blockade. You've also seen uh, folks who families are supported by uh, the forest sector, and people feel quite passionately about it. I think it's uh, it's a conversation we need to have, and what I hope that we can get to is a place where we can uh, hear from each other and respect each other, but also understand that there are multiple values in the forest that we want to respect and that we want to make space for. Right. What about the old growth logging that seems to be the flashpoint here? A lot of people saying, like, okay, we understand logging in second or third growth areas, but why cut down these these massive, large, iconic trees that are hundreds of years old? Why not just preserve them and spare them? What do you, how, how do you respond well, to that? Yeah, I, I think what you have to realize is that, is that BC is already uh, really a leader in conservation um, across the province. More than more than fifty two percent of our land base has a conservation. Uh, some form of conservation measure on it, whether that be a park, protected area, special management zone, or where resource extraction is excluded. With respect to old growth, the vast majority, I think the numbers were just updated on the ministry site, I think it's about 73% of the old growth in the province is outside the timber harvesting land base and will never be harvested. There is a small uh, portion within that, uh, the balance of that, each year there's a small amount that is harvested that is mature timber. And that mature timber supports, you know, 38,000 jobs and families in communities uh, in our province and contributes very significantly to the economic well-being of our province, which is something that we also uh, care about and which is particularly important as we work to lift ourselves out of this devastating uh, health and economic crisis. Speaking to Susan Yurkovich, Susan is the president of the Council of Forest Industries. Just taking a look at your, your website here in the last hour about the issue of old growth logging and you mentioned that there's a lot of jobs on the line here 38,000 jobs billions of dollars in, in GDP is that specifically tied to old growth like what if if you were if the government was to bring in some sort of moratorium on old growth logging you cut that you can't cut down these old trees anymore what would be the impact on that in the industry and the economy yeah so if you look at total jobs in the province there are about a hundred thousand and it's about 14 billion a total uh, 13 billion contribution to GDP. The old growth, uh, the, the number that I was quoting you, was yeah. just related to the old growth um, right. or the mature timber. So that's a lot of families. That's 38,000 jobs and three and a half billion in provincial GDP. That's a lot of families. And I think you saw some of those uh, families who are supported by this sector out um, counter-protesting or, or trying to express their views, which is also an important view. It's, it's not to say that we shouldn't have good protections. We should, and we should continue to have conservation areas and make sure 
um, that we are those are preserved in perpetuity. But we also uh, we also value uh, jobs um, and and the economic contribution that they make to the families and communities across our province that are supported by this sector. Right. Yeah, I just spoke to one of the leaders of those counter protests on the weekend. There, Tamara Megat was on before you, making a, a very similar mm-hmm. case here for the uh, importance of the industry to families uh, that depend on it. Uh, when you take a look at old growth in particular, are those particular trees, do they do they re- yield uh, particular value-added products or something that make them particularly valuable? Like when you're talking about the really old, mature trees, the old growth, like why yeah. why is it necessary? How come there's so much, uh, the jobs and the, and the GDP that comes from that, what do they use those old trees for? I mean... Uh, are they? Do they pre, uh, produce specialty products from those? Uh, they do produce yeah. specialty products, and they also produce products like shingles on a lot of people's houses. You know, cedar shingles that people um, uh, that are that are highly valued. And so, you know, we have a, an array of products that are produced from those. And what we want to do is want to ma- manage the forest in a way that is managed. We across all profiles. So we want to. Um, we want to harvest across old profiles and, and, and try and manage in a way that supports uh, sustainable uh, forests over time. And so there are some mature trees that are harvested, and those create products. Um, some of them will be very familiar to people. And, then, and there are some specialty products, um, appearance-grade products that, you know, people um, like for, um, you know, windows and doors and things that you will find in people's homes that are also uh, – valued um that that attract a higher value and i think you know when we think going forward um not not specifically related to old growth but just generally there are people looking more and more to forest fiber because if it's uh it's coming from a sustainably managed forest um and it is renewable and where we harvest we replant uh, those are things that are important from a climate perspective. And so you're seeing a lot of people looking for products that are made from fiber, for instance, in food packaging, where we're replacing single-use plastics and um, oh. where we have products made from wood, those are also storing carbon. So I think that's something that the world is looking more to. And those those okay. products have value. Okay, just got two minutes left here. The, the government commissioned a report on old growth logging last year, and it, it yielded a report called a new future for old forests it had a, a series of recommendations and i'm sure you're familiar with this yeah. this report and I'm, I'm looking at the one that the the people who are blockading the roads and getting arrested point to this particular recommendation in this report and it calls for a, an immediate response to ecosystems at very high risk and it says defer development in old forests where ecosystems are at risk of no more logging of old trees in these high-risk ecosystems. Do you agree with that, or I, I, do you oppose that recommendation? Look, I, I think there, first of all, I, I think there are some, there, there, there's potential for additional set-asides, and we're not saying no, never, no way. But the report also says we need to have a credible source of information. We need to go out and get that information, recommendations five and seven. Yeah. We need to make sure we clearly understand um, uh, which, in fact, where we have more old growth than we think and, and where perhaps there is um, an opportunity to think about uh, additional preservation. But we've got to have good data and we've got to make sure that we set a clear vision for all forests, something that we can implement a, you know, a province-wide strategy that's based on science and importantly also 
that we um, make sure that whatever decisions are taken, we have robust socioeconomic analysis and we understand uh, what the implications will be as well. So I think, you know, moving forward, we've got to do this in a thoughtful way and we've got to have it grounded in good science. Thank you for coming on today with your thoughts. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, thank you. Same to you. That's Susan, Susan Yurkovich there. She is the president and CEO of the Council of Forest Industries. Let's talk about the growing global interest now in the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Did the virus emerge from human contact with an infected animal, possibly a bat, or did it emerge from a Chinese virology lab in Wuhan, very, very close to the original outbreak. Uh, we There is growing interest in this now. We've got U.S. President Joe Biden has now ordered an intelligence review to look at the scenarios around the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here is Biden uh, talking about that, being questioned by reporters. What do you expect to get from your review, your 90-day review on where the origins of the coronavirus If I knew that, I wouldn't ask for a 90-day review. I don't know. Will you pledge to release the report in full after 90 days? Uh, yes, that's, unless there's something I'm unaware of. All right, U.S. President Joe Biden there talking about the 90-day intelligence review that he has ordered now on the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Let's discuss now with my guest, Charles Burton. He's an expert on China, a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Charles, thanks a lot for coming on. Good to speak with you again. Okay, this is a fascinating situation here. If we go back a, a year or so ago, uh, when there were there were first uh, there was first a lot of speculation about did did the virus emerge from from a lab maybe a, an accidental leak from a laboratory or maybe even a deliberate leak when people brought that up there were some people who were saying well this is just a conspiracy theory or maybe it's racist to bring up a, that kind of possibility now here we are a lot of people taking it a lot more seriously uh, what do you think has changed here why is there a change of attitude on this now. Well, I'd say there are a couple of factors. I mean, for one thing, typically with this kind of disease in the past, there's been a zoonotic connection. In other words, they've been able to identify that the virus jumped from uh, an animal to humans, you know, typically through people who are handling the animals and then and then get the disease or from birds or bats or you know, in the case of SARS, the civet cat. So that right. is the most likely you know, scenario based on past experience. But then um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State under President Donald Trump, said that there were uh, intelligence sources that suggested that, in fact, the virus had emerged due to some um, accident in the Wuhan Institute for Virology. Um, and, you know, this, I think, was largely discredited internationally uh, simply because there wasn't a lot of um, trust in statements coming out of the Trump White House. Right. But what we have now under President Biden, who, you know, is a more credible figure, I guess, in terms of international opinion, um, is further information about these intelligence sources, which suggests that there were three members of the Wuhan Institute for Virology, 
uh, who were hospitalized in the fall of 2019 with SARS-like symptoms. Well, obviously, if they're hospitalized, they must have been pretty sick. So, you know, U.S. intelligence, like all intelligence, will not provide a great deal of information about what they know, typically because they don't want to reveal their sources and, you know, could endanger people in Wuhan who had been uh, collaborating with the CIA and providing this information. But it's now, you know, a long time after the disease has emerged, there is no um, zoonotic connection that's been established. The Chinese government has been preventing the WHO researchers and other figures from accessing the data that they want to try and come to terms with this thing. And the Chinese government keeps insisting that it couldn't possibly be in the lab. You know, why don't you look at Fort Detrick in Maryland, where some soldiers came out to the World Military Games in Wuhan in the fall of 2019, or, you know, maybe it's in Italy, or maybe it yeah. came in on on um, frozen fish packaging out of Thailand. None of those explanations make any sense. The fact yeah. is that that lab is 500 meters from the wet market in Wuhan, where, you know, it was first rampant. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything particularly racist about wanting to get to the bottom of this thing remove any um, any other factors and and uh, proceed accordingly in terms of addressing this and future pandemics. So that's basically where we are, Mike. Okay, speaking to Charles Burton, McDonald Laurier Institute, I think the very fact that, as you referenced, that China had tried to frustrate any investigations into this matter, blocking officials from the World Health Organization, uh, coming up with all kinds of other wild theories that maybe the, the virus came from the United States, as you mentioned, is that on its surface suspicious suspicious in itself that you'd have the Chinese government going to great extremes to say that this is not this is not true or it's a wicked lie as the state media there has called it yeah i mean they talk about the highly suspicious fort detrick but the point is you know we didn't have any any outbreak of um of uh, this uh, covid-19 in maryland and it hasn't happened in thai uh, frozen fish planting plants either i guess the main thing here would be not so much, you know, whether it came out of the lab or not. You know, maybe a mistake was made in handling or something happened that caused the virus to be released to the workers in the lab. You know, these things are tragic, but, you know, it happens in the world. It's not uh, maybe in China people who might have made such a mistake would find themselves subject to the death penalty. But for the most part, investigation would be made. I think that if it's the case that the Chinese government knew knows about the actual source of this um, pandemic, you know, and and has been deceiving the world, thereby causing us not to take effective measures um, to to stem the pandemic, resulting in millions of unnecessary deaths, that is extremely serious. And the fact, yeah. as you say, that they're blocking investigation. Uh, suggest that because, you know, one would have thought that if they weren't able to establish the zoonotic connection, that they would be wanting all the um, authorities in the world to have the ability to to deal with this kind of data to assist them in coming to uh, an explanation right away. Okay, what would you say would be the ramifications here? Let's look forward here. And if it if there is some credible evidence or it's proven that the virus did emerge from that lab in Wuhan, whether it was an accident. Some people think, well, maybe was it even 
deliberate. There's been some suggestion of that, notably by the previous Trump administration, as you mentioned. But even if it's proven that they can trace the virus to the lab, what would be the ramifications of that in terms of global politics and international relations between China and the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, we already obviously have a a great deal of um, discontent with the early period dissembling on this thing. You know, we know that there were doctors in in Wuhan in the late fall of 2019 who were communicating among themselves about the emergence of a new SARS-like syndrome who were then hauled in by the Chinese police, uh, a force to recant and apologize. Yeah. One of those doctors, the ophthalmologist, uh, Li Wenliang, um, subsequently, you know, two months later, tragically died himself of SARS. So we know that from an early stage, the Chinese government was not giving us um, the information about human-to-human transmission, which meant that countries like Canada did not take the appropriate steps to... Um, to prevent travel in from China and to and to do the isolation and so on that is necessary to to try and stem that thing and prevent it from turning into the horrendous tragedy that it has become. But let's say we find out that the Chinese government knew that it was an accident in the lab and the senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party decided to keep that information away from the World Health Organization and the global community. Well, I mean, you know, how could we continue to deal with that regime, knowing that they had uh, that they'd engaged in this outrageous uh, um, action designed to protect themselves politically at the cost of millions of unnecessary deaths? You know, okay. it would just, you know, it would just be disastrous for any future engagement with China on anything. Okay, we've got some investigations going on, or at least some reviews. We heard off the top that the Biden administration in the United States, the president has ordered a 90-day intelligence review of what is known about the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Is it possible, though, especially given China's, the cover-ups that we've seen there in China uh, around COVID-19 and their reluctance to cooperate, is it possible that we may never fully know the truth of how this happened well that would be you know terrible but you know you're right it in some ways the chinese seem to be behaving like the mafia when they clean up the scene of a murder in movies you know they they wouldn't let the who in in a timely fashion and the wet market and the lab had been thoroughly cleansed uh, before they got there and they wouldn't provide the earlier data that they'd taken before the global community came in so you know from that point of view um it looks like the Chinese are trying to suppress it. I think that um, probably standard intelligence is the key here. And, of course, you know, the idea of it coming out of the lab is a hypothesis in the absence of any other viable connection. It may be that we will turn up evidence of animal-to-human transmission that can be scientifically right. verified, and then the Wuhan um, Institute for Virology will be, uh, you know, cleared of any suspicion but, uh, you know, I hope that our government will be a bit more proactive in cooperating with the Biden regime and making it clear to the Chinese government that we want them to stop dissembling and prevaricating and let us find out the truth about this thing, because it's very important in terms of, uh, you know, our understanding how variants form and how to prevent a future pandemic. Well, do you think that Canada has been less than cooperative in that regard? Yes, I think that uh, I think that our government has not been as willing to 
um, ally with the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and other like-minded allies in uh, indicating to the Chinese regime that what they're doing is just not acceptable, and uh, we, you know, we 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 just have to work collectively to exert any kind of pressure we can to get them to do the right thing. And if they won't, then um, there should be consequences for them. And that's not the kind of way Canada has been approaching China. You know, we haven't done anything about Chinese spurious um, non-tariff barriers to our agricultural commodity exports, which resulted in considerable, um, you know, losses to Canadian farmers. We haven't done anything about the hostage diplomacy of um, Colbert's favor 902 days on. I think it's time for our government to get in tune with what other governments are doing and not to think that we can appease China and derive economic benefits as a result. Charles Burton, thanks for coming on with your thoughts and analysis today. Appreciate it a lot. It's been great to speak with you.